Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut and other northern states were complicit in the slave trade, from its economy benefiting from slave labor to prominent families owning enslaved people. Coming up, we hear about a unique project by local university students who research slave history in colonial and post-colonial Fairfield, Connecticut. First, many of us know the stories of prominent black women from Harriet Tubman to Maya Angelou, but how are their stories and others being shared with students? Theater is one way to connect young people with African-American history, and that doesn't mean only talking about the history of slavery. Kimberly Wilson is an actress who's developed a musical about the women I mentioned, and many more. It's called A Journey, Musical One Woman Show. Kimberly is a Westport, Connecticut resident, and she joins us today via Skype. Kimberly, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So tell Thank us. Thank you for having me. I understand you have been performing a journey, musical one woman show, uh, for uh, several years, but it actually started more than two decades ago. Tell us about when uh, this idea to uh, write and perform in this play uh, came to you, Kimberly. Well, to give you a little background, I am originally from Minneapolis, and my theater history started years ago in children's theater school and then in the community theater. And then I became a professional actress at the the um, Mixed Blood Theater and Penumbra Theater. So my theater history was strong in Minneapolis. So when I relocated in, to Connecticut with my baby girl, when she was two years old, I came with that background left in Minnesota. So I came to Connecticut looking for a new opportunity. And also I had to start afresh, making my reputation known and also building opportunities that would afford me an opportunity to work and and perform and also be a a great single mother. So what I did, I was working at Hurlbut Elementary School in in Weston, and I met a young man named Chris Coogan, who's a wonderful pianist, and he is a leader of the gospel, the Good News Gospel Choir in this community. Many people know him, and I met him, and he was doing a piece for Black History Month for the children. And it came to me that a one-woman show or a person of character could participate in the schools. I never understood that. I never knew that when I was doing theater in Minnesota. I was always a part of a theater, a theater ensemble, a theater group. Never um, even thought about being a one person going in, into, into schools or community centers and libraries, etc. So meeting him really set the ball rolling. I created Sojourner Truth and introduced Sojourner Truth piece and, and added a spiritual. And then out of that grew three characters, my, excuse me, Rosa Parks, Harriet Tubman, and Sojourner Truth. And I called that piece the Three Spirits of Black Womanhood. And I was able to work part-time and go into schools and tour mm-hmm. those three characters into schools. Because as you know, and as your audience probably knows, if there's 
any character are or are any characters that they'll introduce into Black History Month, it will 99.9% include Rosa Parks, Sojourner Truth, Harriet Tubman. Am I correct? I think that is true. But tell us, uh, because uh, you focused in on these three women, what were you bringing uh, to uh, these students that was different from what they might have been learning in class? Well, it's always wonderful when you can do it in a theatrical way. Most often you'll see kids are getting recitation or they'll read a piece. But when you can breathe a character and breathe life and breath and make these characters human and accessible to them, it gives more value to the history of these wonderful women. And also it it hopefully incites these children's query and search and thirst for knowledge of all these wonderful women and all the people before them who came and made a difference in our African-American and our, in American history. Kimberly, it just helps. How did the children respond uh, to your performance? What do you remember children about it? are wonderful. Children, because I, I do believe I'm not a Pied Piper of sorts, but I'm very welcoming. And when I'm not a, a on the stage person, when I go into these, the schools, etc., I'm right there on their level. So I touch them. I reach out to them. I engage them. And they are involved and included in the performance, even if they don't speak. They give energy and they smile and they laugh. And then um, when I created a journey, the full length piece, and I included my Angelo and I included the history of our of history, the rich cultural history before the slave trade, kids and students and adults alike realize that even though we say the history of blacks in America are slave. No, we have to reiterate the fact that we were rich in our culture, rich in African heritage, rich in our own land, and we were kidnapped and stolen and separated and redefined and, and, and brought into a strange land in a strange language. And when people understand that, they respect not only the journey, but they also search for knowledge and search for understanding and respect for how can we still be here? What would I do if I were in this same situation? And this is a celebration. When we look at the history of how people go through trauma and how cultures have been divided and destroyed but not destroyed to the point where people don't celebrate and come through them, kids are so resilient. Kids and children always want to know the truth. And if it's not educated through um, school books, they seek it elsewhere. They seek opportunities. And so with theater that I've performed and go into the schools and go into colleges and universities and libraries and community centers, et cetera, and even homes, these people that I perform in front of and perform with and share these stories too, they are also tapping into their own history, their own understanding of where they came from, what all of this, all of this information means to them, and then it 
un- gives them an understanding of what is the nature of history and how humans work together, live together, celebrate each other, celebrate each other. I have to reiterate that, celebrate each other. And that makes people love each other, respect each other, no matter where they are, what they've chosen to do with their lives, and also the culture and the history that they celebrate and they share to make this great land in this great world, what it is. Uh, joining us uh, via Skype today on Where We Live is Kimberly Wilson, a playwright and performer of A Journey, musical one-woman show. Uh, she'll be performing that uh, coming up in Bridgeport. We're going to have details in a little bit. Uh, Kimberly, so you expanded uh, A Journey from three uh, women to about seven to eight women. Um, tell us about the creative process in terms of your research, but also how do you bring these characters to life and transition from one to the next on stage oh there's so much joy in the theater when you and when i introduced the additional characters i always introduced music because music is such a calming and easy way to share history and share anybody's stories so when i introduce these characters and make them a family in journeys one woman show i each character has a spiritual that sings and represents their character story. And I also sing a separate musical spiritual as I transition from that character to the next character. So the songs are also characters within a journey. And it's also a movement piece that sets up and prepares the audience for the next character. And the research that you've asked about, research is multifold. You know, you can get so much information on the Internet and the library and resources and listening to other people telling their stories of how they met Maya Angelou or and you can hear interviews on television. But with the history of the queens and I use collect uh, a, a theatrical license poetic license, I say, because I didn't want to represent one queen from one African tribe. I wanted it to be a a collective richness that is a queen, a royalty of our heritage. And so I was able to transition that history into also sharing how the trade, the slave trade made a difference. And it's not that queen coming to the slave ship. It's the collective, all those slaves who were on the slave ship, all those families who were torn apart, those are represented on the slave ship. And so also in the cotton field, when you realize that not just one generation, there may have been two or three generations of slaves, families who were um, in enslaved on the cotton plantation and did not know freedom. And so these stories transition, they go from character to character, story to story, but it's a common theme of we are journeying and we are going through these suffrages with hope, with courage, with resilience and perseverance and love and family. So wherever these people were and are and wherever people are now, they have courage and hope. They have people surrounded, surrounding them and 
and giving them support and lifting them up and keeping them moving and keeping their story going. So when I brought in Maya Angelou, Rosa Parks, people understood that there is still movement going. And the audience talkback that I offer after each and every performance, at one performance, a young lady said, well, you've done so eloquent with these stories. We want to hear your story. Mm. And I was quite taken aback, I must tell you, Lucy. Well, Kimberly, before we hear more of your story, I wanted to have our listeners hear you uh, a clip from your show, A Journey, musical one-woman show. This is you acting as Maya Angelou. Let's take a listen. The racial discrimination left a foul taste in my mouth. I just couldn't understand why our family was so hated just because of the color of our skin. Now, Kimberly, when you, we hear that clip, I mean, you sound so much like uh, Maya Angelou. Uh, how do you uh, tell us a little bit more about how you're able to adapt and develop those voices of these characters? Again, um, you're playing seven to eight women during this performance. Well, with I'm an, I am a quick picker-upper of people. And so I wasn't able to meet all these people, of course. But in the story, you look for the theme of the story and what you are wanting to share. And so when I come into Maya, you have heard Maya and you understand that she is a poetess and she would sing and tell her story with such eloquence and she would bring you in to her message and educate you, but also invite you to reflect on who you are. So with Maya, as you can see, there is so much joy in how she is smiling and as well as singing. But with Harriet, when you talk about Harriet Tubman, you know, she's Smart, but she, I took her to be old when I'm telling the story. You know, I had to be in the slave quarters with these people. I had to help all my people. But see, I was smart. See, folks don't understand that you can learn from people around you. You can learn from the sun and the moon. You can learn from the animal creatures. And you can learn from God's earth, too. Mm-hmm. So, Lucy, now let me come back to Kimberly. So you understand that there is a poetic license when you are a thespian, an actress, mm-hmm. an actor, trying to share your story, do your trade, and also give life and breath to these characters without it being a caricature. Mm-hmm. I understand, Kimberly, uh, when you were uh, creating Harriet Tubman uh, for your performance, you drew on your memories of your grandmother and great-grandmother. Tell us about them. Yes. See, my, I have to laugh because I'm, I'm looking at her right now. My grandmother, she was a full figure, but she had the highest pitch voice. And 90% of the time, she didn't have her teeth in. So she would, you know, she would eat with her fingers. She'd eat the collard greens with her fingers and the cornbread with her fingers. And so she would use her tongue a lot. 
I don't know if you have a, a family member who's elder, who's elderly, who does not have their teeth in at all the time. They normally, my grandmother would put her teeth in when it was time to go to church or go out. So I often saw her without her teeth. And so her mouth and her her vocabulary and how she spoke and all of it was round her mouth and her tongue. So that was a gathering. And then when they told me about my grand great-grandmother, whom I wasn't able to meet, they said she was stern and she was mean because she had to discipline all the kids. So when I incorporated what I knew from my grandmother, Mama Scott, and uh, what the stories were about Big Mama, then I just kind of melded them together to create what I saw and how I project Harriet Tubman. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, my guest today is Kimberly Wilson, a playwright and performer of A Journey, musical one-woman show. She joins us today via Skype. Uh, coming up, we're going to learn more about some of the other uh, characters in her musical and learn more about Kimberly, too. You can join us as well, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook or Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. My guest today is Kimberly Wilson, a playwright and actress based in Westport, Connecticut. We've been learning about her musical called A Journey. It's a one-woman show where Wilson focuses on the history of prominent black women. She's been performing A Journey for historical societies and school students for several years. Kimberly's joining us today via Skype. Uh, we hear how your show has evolved over time. And Kimberly, uh, now it uh, includes your own personal story. How did you get there where you decided that you wanted to also so bring uh, your personal experiences into that performance uh, for uh, so many people. Thank you for the question. The question was given to me in the audience talkback. One of the audience members was so pleased and complimentary about how I had brought the other characters to life and to this audience. She asked me why I had not included my own story. And then others chimed in that they wanted to hear my story. And I admitted to them that it had never come to my thinking that I was going to include me, nor did I feel that at that point that my life was valued in these great women's story. And also I reflected on my own past and how, you know, even with the mistakes of the many mistakes I've made growing up and even as an adult and and being a single mother and you know the trials of being a successful mother in Fairfield County Connecticut and then going through um, breast cancer and and so it made me realize that even telling these stories weren't making me vulnerable but when that audience member said that I was quite taken aback that I would have to open myself up and eventually share my story. And it took me, I do believe, a good two years. And it's making me emotional now because it took me time 
to accept the fact that somebody would want to hear my story on the stage. And, you know, I've done theater all my life telling somebody else's story. Mm. So I would have to write a piece that would not only fit with these other wonderful, fabulous women in my play, but also segue into being a valuable piece to the audience members. And I must say, it has been such a cathartic process. I have been opened up, very open and honest. I've shared even more, not even, I I can't speak it on the radio, but even stronger, deeper stories that I realized that needed to come out. And each year I revisit the scripts and I revisit each character's piece. And I don't don't do major changes, but I, I make it, you know, tighter, smoother. And each year since that person asked me to share my story, I have found more depth and more beauty and more freedom in sharing and celebrating my story. Mm. Kimberly, you have a daughter. Uh, what does she think of you sharing your story in this way? Oh, she loves it now. <laughs> she was fine. It was my mother who was concerned about how I would tell, be telling what I would be telling and to what degree I would tell it. Because those two women are the ones who love me the most and know the most of my history, the good, the bad, and the, and the wonderful. But they knew, and they support me now, they knew I had to do it and write it. And they've seen the new Kimberly, the more freed Kimberly, the more open daughter, mother, friend, leader that is more sensitive, more caring, more spiritual, more uh, reflective, more joyous, more grateful. And so that change really helped change my life. Mm. Uh, Kimberly, I I don't want to ask you to go into details about uh, trauma that you've experienced in your life. But again, as some of the women that you portray on stage, uh, these characters, many of them have undergone trauma as well. Uh, As the audience sees you telling their stories, uh, tell us more about the talkbacks and and what they how they respond to you uh, after seeing a journey. The talkbacks, I think, are the most valuable piece of a journey because the journey speaks of storytelling, but telling the story, your own story. So we celebrate these wonderful women in history and we segue to the playwright story, but the talk back opens to share their story and audience members do share their stories. Often the talk back is at least 30 minutes long, 
I don't cut it off unless people, you know, unless I'm at a tech where it's a, 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 a um, union theater and time is of the essence. But the audience breathes and the theater experience continues to go through each person and they share their stories and they listen. And it gets to the point where it's not about the play and it's about the audience members who are now comfortable to share their stories amongst strangers, but they're not strangers anymore because they have this same experience and they're experiencing it together, this theatrical experience. So I cannot tell you enough the beauty and the energy that is shared after my performance and within the audience talk back. See, I get to witness it. I get to stand on stage and listen and see these people speak and see how they turn to each other and see how they touch each other or, or they hug and or many are, are crying from you know some of the stories through, throughout the play and and feeling the the energy of the spirituals and and emotionally some are maybe drained or they're recalling some of their childhood or some of their own trauma and even sometimes i have to be prepared to receive some very personal disclosures of from certain members who may come up to me after the talk back and want to speak to me one-on-one -on -one because it's so personal, but they feel that they have to and they know it's safe to. So it is such a valuable piece, Lucy. I can't tell you enough. Uh, Kimberly Wilson's on Where We Live Today. Uh, she's a playwright and performer of A Journey musical one-woman show. Uh, it's a show uh, where Wilson focuses on the history of prominent black women, um, including some fictional characters. But also, I wanted to learn a little bit more about how you have weaved in local history into a journey, including uh, someone uh, named Mary Freeman, who we've talked about on our show. Uh, she and her sister Eliza were prominent uh, black women in Bridgeport, and not a lot of people know about them. Well, I have to give this thanks and credit to Maisa Tisdale of the Mary and Eliza Freeman Center for History and Community. They came to me and uh, they asked me to help them create uh, a scene that would be woven into my journey. And in that, that was a little over a month ago. Normally, I don't take that short period of time to research and share, you know, to uh, develop a new character. But Maisa wrote a narrative because she's been so ingrained in the history of Little Liberia, thanks to her work with the, the center. And so with her narrative and the information that I was able to receive online and from our co communications and conversations, I was able to write my own script that really works well with the other characters. And it has a nice flowing energy so she's not a stranger to the family anymore. Mary Freeman is part of the family. And bringing it, the story into Bridgeport and letting 
people know that there is so much rich history to be understood and celebrated and researched and learned about right here. Mm-hmm. I didn't know Mary Freeman and little Liberia was little Bridgeport. I didn't know there were so many Native Americans who married black people right here in Connecticut. I didn't know there were so many mm-hmm. landowners that who were Native American and black in the 1800s. So even that brief narrative that Maisa wrote for me really opened my eyes and understood that I live in Westport, just a small jaunt away, a small journey away, that this history of Little Liberia, Ethiopia, and the strength of the Blacks and Native Americans and Haitians and other people of color who were settled there and, and had businesses there and, and brought, bought property and built land. And then also finding out about Zion Church, that it was a, a, a an underground railroad stop. And, and Zion Church is Walter's Memorial African-American Methodist Episcopal Zion Church. And I performed there. Mm. And you mentioned and so little. I, you mentioned little Liberia. Just to let our listeners know, again, this was a neighborhood in the 19th century in Bridgeport where the Freeman sisters lived, and as you mentioned, um, other um, blacks and Native Americans all living there in that neighborhood. A prosperous neighborhood. Very prosperous, thriving, and you know when you can have communities of similar histories and stories at that time when the when the world was changing. You know, everything was evolving. And when you're in changing times and you can have celebrate your own history together and lift up each other together and gather together and and celebrate your faith together and and building up families and businesses together, it was and then be on the waterfront and to to have uh, businesses and travel. Uh, That's a lot of history. Mm And so, you know, I'm grateful to Maisa and and her work with the um, the Freeman Center, and also them going and communicating with Ramin Gamestrom. She is executive director of the Westport Historical Society, because Ramin called me and said, "Look, they have this opportunity. Would I be interested in integrating this character?" So all of these yeses came mm-hmm. to be. And when I say yeses, and I see, I believe in the power of three. We had the Maisa reaching out to Ramin and Ramin reaching out to me. And we have that power of telling these stories of these powerful women, the powerful journey, the powerful history, and the power of the celebration of telling our stories. There's power in that. And when I say power, wealth of power, mm-hmm. power of knowledge. Kimberly, I wanted I wanted to take a quick call. Uh, Christina's calling from New Britain here on Where We Live. Christina, go ahead. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, I really think the work that Kimberly is doing is wonderful. Um, I just tweeted in that this is the future of public history, right, is making it accessible and having people connect to the story through art and music. So I really commend her effort. Um, and I, I really wanted to speak, too, um, about Maisa and uh, the work that she does with the Connecticut Freedom Trail. Um, you know, we have 169 cities and towns, and nearly each one, nearly each one has some way to commemorate Black history throughout time that takes it away from this abolitionist narrative and into more of the contemporary successes. Um, you know, Marian Anderson just got initiated on there. Um, here at TCSU, we have Ebenezer Bassett Hall now. Um, so there are 
new things happening, fresh discoveries in our state. And I just I really commend that all of this attention around it because it's important stuff. Well, thank you, Christina, uh, for your call. Uh, Kimberly Wilson, we just have a a couple of minutes left. Tell us about uh, your next performance of A Journey, which will include uh, Mary Freeman and others. Well, the, the performance is at the Bijou Theater. That's Thursday, May 30th. That's next week, a week from today. Uh, the doors open at 7 p.m. The show starts at promptly at 7.30. It is an hour and 15 or so minutes long, no intermission, so we can have the spirit alive and the audience joining in. They can join in with the singing of spirituals and the emotions and bring their own spirit along and share their stories. And they can get more information online, either at the Bijou Theater or at the Freeman Center's website. We welcome you and we invite all to come and attend because we all must celebrate everyone's story. Well, Kimberly Wilson, it's been a pleasure to speak with you. I wish you were in the studio with me, but via Skype, uh, uh, we're so happy that the connection stayed true and we were able to hear you bring some of your characters to life for us. A pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. God bless you. We'll have more information about A Journey, a musical one-woman show, on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. After the break, we're now going to learn about an online database that tracks the history of slave owners and enslaved people who lived in Fairfield, Connecticut. You can join us, too, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tomorrow we're going to air a special from Connecticut Public. It's a multimedia special focusing on uh, when new parents they may take for granted that their baby will one day talk to them. But when a child is born deaf, the issue gets complicated quickly. Should parents use sign language? Should they use implants and spoken language? Should they use both? Uh, we're going to explore uh, those questions and more. It's a special uh, reported and produced by uh, Connecticut Public's David DeRoche. That's tomorrow. Now, today we've been focusing in on history, and thousands of enslaved people lived in Connecticut in the 17th and 18th centuries. Recently, towns like Guilford and West Hartford have focused on this largely unknown history with projects like Witness Stones, which place markers in town where enslaved individuals lived and worked. The stones include information like their names and whether they were freed. Students at Fairfield University have also worked on a slave history project. They've developed an online database of slave families and enslaved people who lived in the town of Fairfield, Connecticut. It grew out of efforts of a beloved Fairfield professor. To tell us more, joining us by phone is Dr. Giovanni Raffini, professor of history at Fairfield University. Uh, Dr. Raffini, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Olivia McAvoy, who's a recent grad of Fairfield University who worked on this project. Olivia, welcome to where we live. Hello. Thank you for having me. So I'll start with uh, Giovanni. Uh, Tell us about the role of the late Dr. Vincent Rosevac and what was his vision and and how he got started with this research project. Sure. It's an interesting story because Vince was a classicist. He was our Greek and Latin teacher for years. But he also was aware of how much local history there was to learn about Fairfield and its surrounding towns. And he wanted people in the history department to do more to explore that history. 
So this started with him about 30 years ago. He started digging around in court records, probate records, census records, and published a few articles when he discovered some of the documents relating to slavery in Fairfield. But the project was on hold for a long time while he was doing other kinds of research. And then a few years ago, he picked it back up with the idea of doing this student-faculty collaborative research project and creating this database. And, and that's where Olivia and some of the other students came in. Ultimately, we don't know what his long-term plans were. He passed away before he could finish the project. But one of the things that's exciting about this is that it inspired a lot of people to pick up where he left off, basically. How difficult was it to acquire records uh, when we think about the 17th and 18th uh, centuries, as well as, uh, you know, a lot of people may not be familiar with uh, uh, Connecticut's role in slavery. So tell us more about some of the records that uh, the late professor was able to find and how you continued that work. Well, I I think you you mentioned uh, one thing that surprised me enormously was I grew up in California and had no idea that slavery had a role in Connecticut. I always thought of it as a southern institution, part of the the gap in my education. I think Olivia can speak better than I about the specifics of the records, but one of the challenges I know that people face when they're looking at old documents like that, handwriting. How do you read these things? It's very hard to do. I know they had fantastic cooperation with uh, the probate court and some of the local historical societies who were so happy to see researchers come through and start pouring over these texts. They had a lot of support from public institutions. Mm. Olivia, I mentioned you're a recent grad, but you did work on this project. So tell us more about um, some of the records you were able to acquire. What did they say? Yeah, so um, most of the records that we did use came from three specific places. Uh, The first is probate records uh, down at the probate court in the town hall area of Fairfield. Um, The second was church records, which we got from the Fairfield Museum and History Center, as well as military records and other various archives that we also got from the History Center. Those were our three main focuses of um, record. And what those records would tell us was little bits and pieces of the story and the narrative we were trying to pull together. So in the property records, we might see when a slave was was moved from household to household uh, as a, as uh, as property. Uh, the church records might give us information like baptism or birth information, and the military records if they served in um, some uh, regiments during any uh, conflict. Excuse me. Um, those little bits and pieces help to connect a more clear story together once they're all put together. Um, so those are the really the main records that we used. Um, again, in addition to some random ones that we may have found here and there, like runaway slave ads, um, general newspaper ads, um, and stuff like that. Mm. I know some of uh, these records actually had names of enslaved people. Uh, others did not. Can you tell us a few of the, the people that you uncovered through this research? Yeah, so our database has uh, almost 900 instances of slavery in Fairfield uh, across 400, about 400 households. So we do have a lot of uh, stories that we can tell. Um, one that we like to, we do like to share is um, the story of Tim and Lil. Tim and Lil is a slave family that we did know a lot about, fortunately, because one of their um, descendants actually wrote a, quite an extensive history about them uh, a couple years back um, that we were able to have that document uh, to help us further our research. And so we have that story of how the two were married, um, but part of separate households before uh, Lil, the wife, and one of the children were sold back into the same household as the father and the other children. They were emancipated in 1799 and moved to New York, and we have a lot of history about 
we have a lot of understanding about their history in New York from uh, this research. But uh, what we were able to further discover was um, Tim, the male slave in the story, excuse me, his parents, um, that was, those were previously two unknown uh, individuals. And through our research, we were able to uh, bring that one generation back and find more uh, more people in this family, um, which we thought was really cool because we had all of this information, but to even bring it back one generation further uh, was really important for us because the main purpose of our research was genealogical um, at its base. We wanted to be able to identify and tell these stories um, that sometimes ancestors or descendants of slaves, they're cut off in their genealogical understanding of how far back their families can go. And so to give this information uh, to those people and to towns and towns like Fairfield and in, uh, in history centers like in Fairfield, that information is really important. And we wanted to be able to help mm. tell those stories a little bit better. You said that this uh, database includes 900 records of enslaved people in the town of Fairfield. Yeah, that's from about 1637 to about 1848. But we know that our research isn't complete yet. We know that there are probate records that we didn't get, did not get to go through. Um, we know that there's other records that we may not have even known had uh, accounts of slavery in them that we haven't even looked through yet. So that's the best part about this database. While we've completed our aspects of it, it's going to be able to continue to grow with students at Fairfield University or in uh, other interests um, outside of the university. People can continue to look and develop this uh, project even further because we know that we haven't exhausted all of the resources we possibly could have. Um, so from what we've been able to find, we have about 900, but we know, we are, we're pretty confident that there's other avenues that people can explore to find more instances and to be able to record these people as well. And this is just in one town in Connecticut. Uh, Giovanni, uh, what has been the reaction of this uh, online database uh, in the town of Fairfield? Well, I think a lot of people reacted the way you react and the way I reacted when I heard that number, that 900 figure. I think a lot of my colleagues at Fairfield and the people uh, in the probate court and the historical societies that Olivia and Alec were working with knew that my colleague Vince had some students who were poking around and learning some interesting stuff, and they didn't think too much about it. But when they saw the database, they saw the website, and they heard that figure, 900 of these slaves, everybody stands up and pays attention. All of a sudden, it becomes uh, much larger in scope than people had realized, much more immediate in detail than people imagined was possible. And so I think there's been a lot of excitement that's been generated by it. I know their presentation uh, at Fairfield a month ago just received so many uh, compliments, so much praise, and a number of faculty and students who came forward and said, what can we do to help? How can we help build on this project? So I think there's a lot of positive energy, not just for appreciating what they've done, but for thinking about how it can be turned into research projects for the future. For our listeners, uh, Giovanni, who are interested in checking out this online database, where can they go? Sure. It's actually on one of the public-facing sites at Fairfield University. The URL is digitalhumanities.fairfield.edu slash slavery.
And we'll be sure to put a link on our website at wmpr.org slash where we live. We'll also try to tweet that out. Uh, Giovanni, we heard uh, Olivia mention uh, efforts to expand. Olivia is a recent grad. Others who've worked on the project um, um, are also recent graduates. But in terms of looking at uh, the state of Connecticut's uh, slave history, other, uh, I guess, uh, opportunities to expand this to other towns in Fairfield County, uh, even uh, throughout the state? Absolutely. I, earlier in the segment, you mentioned a couple of towns that are already doing this sort of slavery commemorative work. And I think ultimately what's probably going to happen is that the Fairfield Slavery Project will become part of a larger umbrella project of interest in slavery research in this sort of way. And I think that there are a couple of ways that's going to happen. Uh, Fairfield students, we already have people lined up who are uh, not yet graduates, who still have a year or two left at Fairfield, who are interested in doing independent study uh, courses on exactly this research and taking the project forward in different directions. And so I think one of the things that we're going to see is building on Olivia and Alex's research. They're going to start mapping in physical space where some of these slaves lived, where they worked. Some of their buildings are still in existence in Fairfield. Some of the places can become landmarks in the same way that some of the towns that you mentioned have done. Mm. Uh, I know one student who is going to be continuing with the project next year is going to be researching some of the legal documents, what makes the legal structure that underpinned slavery in Connecticut, and studying these individuals through that legal framework. So I think there's going to be a lot of uh, possibilities going forward, not only for digging deeper into what Fairfield has, but doing exactly what you say and branching out into other towns nearby. Uh, speaking of West Hartford, uh, joining us uh, for a quick few minutes is Jennifer Matos, Executive Director of the Noah Webster House and West Hartford Historical Society. Uh, Jennifer, thanks for calling in because uh, what caught our attention as we head into Memorial Day is something that's happening in West Hartford, uh, again, uncovering uh, the history of an enslaved man by the name of Prout. Tell us what's happening over the weekend. Well, thanks for having me on. Um, through the Witness Stones West Hartford Project, which is uh, co-directed by Dr. Tracy Wilson and Elizabeth Devine, they were able to uncover records about a man named Prout. He was enslaved in, in West Hartford uh, by the Whitman family, which was a prominent family in town. Uh, and they discovered that he served during the Revolutionary War and actually died at Fort Ticonderoga in 1776. Uh, so a group of fifth grade students from Renbrook School in West Hartford researched more about Prout's life with Dr. Tracy Wilson, and they successfully petitioned the town council to have Prout's name added to the Revolutionary War Monument. Um, so his name is going to be engraved on the monument in about 10 minutes. Um, and then um, on Monday during a Memorial Day ceremony at the Veterans Memorial, um, an, a fifth grade student from Renbrook and Dr. Tracy Wilson will be speaking to honor uh, Prout's contributions to, to the war effort. Well, that's wonderful to hear that it was uh, through uh, students uh, researching uh, uh, the history of Prout that he will now be added to West Hartford's Veterans Memorial. Uh, thank you, uh, Jennifer Matos, again, Executive Director of the Noah Webster House, for telling us about uh, this occasion. And we'll have more information on our website about that uh, event on Memorial Day. I also want to thank our guests, again, this uh, online slave database researched by Fairfield University students. 
uh, Dr. Giovanni Ruffini and Olivia McAvoy worked on that project. We thank both of you for joining us today. Thanks for having us. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today's show produced by Lydia Brown. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. Uh, also thanks to Carmen Baskoff, another producer who was screening our calls today. You can learn more about the show at wnpr.org slash where we live. A lot of different links uh, that we talked about today that we're going to have on our website as well. You can learn more about our first guest, Kimberly Wilson, a playwright and performer, and an upcoming performance in Bridgeport of A Journey, musical one-woman show, as as well as uh, the events in West Hartford and this amazing project at Fairfield University. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.